Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. see if you look at uh, the notices at the back page about our service this evening. We have an evening service at half past five and you'll see printed there that we're going to have two sermons today on two prayers of Jesus and we're delighted that Sinclair Ferguson is back with us again this morning. Uh, Kindly agreed to come back and preach for us again morning and evening today and Sinclair is going to be preaching on these two prayers of the Lord Jesus. John chapter 17 this morning And then uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, this evening. So I'm going to read this morning's passage, John's Gospel, chapter 17, and reading from verse 20. You'll find it on page 903 of the Black Bibles. The Black Bibles, if you're using those. Page 903. The Lord Jesus says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, his followers, those who know him and love him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made them to know your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be back with you here at uh, Trinity want to invite you to turn to the passage that David has just read for us. Um, And as he said, um, the sermons today are um, individual sermons, but they are also linked together. Um, Rather the way, if you're one of those cool people who's into decorating your walls in a modern way, um, you may have a a couple of posters on the wall, unless you're fabulously rich and they are Rembrandts on the wall. And although they are separate posters, they, they're like an antiphony. They feed off one another. You could simply have one of them, but when you've both of them, it actually makes sense, better sense of the other. Or if you were uh, into medieval Uh, altars. You know often these medieval altars had triptychs on them or diptychs on them 
where there would be three different pictures or two different pictures, uh, often of the Lord Jesus himself in two different situations. Um, But they were visual expositions of Scripture. Uh, They were like one passage of Scripture shedding light on another passage of Scripture, which in turn would shed light on the first passage in Scripture. So although these are totally separate studies we're going to do today, uh, they, they do have this very special effect because in this first section in John's Gospel, uh, what we're going to focus on is what Jesus wants. And uh, he says it very specifically in verse 24, this is what I want, Father. But when we turn to Mark chapter 14, uh, probably no more than an hour later, Jesus is praying in a very different way about precisely what he doesn't want, but is willing to do. And that stretches our sense of Jesus, I find, greatly that Jesus would be able to say to his father in John 17, Father, this is what I want. And actually the same Greek verbs are used in these two different passages. And then within an hour, he comes to his father and he says, Father, this is what I don't want, but I'm willing to do. And it seems to me there's a very deep connection between these two prayers. They sound so much in tension, Father, I want, and Father, I don't want. But I think a moment's reflection, if you know something about the gospel, will help you to see just how, how profoundly related to one another these two prayers actually are, and that the first prayer depends upon the second prayer, and the second prayer sheds tremendous light on the first prayer. But it's the first prayer in John 17, verses 20 through 26 that I want us to turn to this morning. You'll notice if you're using the English Standard Version, it actually has a title. The title isn't part of the Bible. It's there because someone has thought this is what this prayer is about. And it's a very unusual title, isn't it? The High Priestly Prayer of Jesus passage says nothing about Jesus as our High Priest. But almost since the beginning of the Christian church, Christian readers of the Bible have thought of this prayer as Jesus coming to his Father as our High Priest. And one of the reasons they've done it is because there's a pattern in this prayer that is very similar to the pattern in which the high priest consecrated himself for the great day of sacrifice. And what we know is that he first of all would consecrate himself to the Lord, and then he would consecrate himself and those who served with him, the other ministering priests, And then finally, he would consecrate all the people of God. And that's the language Jesus himself uses here in verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And if you look through the passage, you'll see in the first four verses, he's consecrating himself to his father. 
And then from verse 6 on through to verse 19, he's gathering his immediate disciples and he's bringing them to the Father. And then thirdly, in this remarkable final section, he's coming to the Father and he's praying for all of God's people. And what's remarkable about this section of the prayer is, it's not only the conclusion of the longest prayer in the New Testament, it's the conclusion of the only prayer in the New Testament in which you are personally involved. There are prayers in the New Testament that teach us how to pray. There are prayers in the New Testament that are made for those to whom the author is writing. So the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels teaches us to pray. Paul's prayers, for example, in Ephesians that I know you've been studying, are made for the Ephesians, and they also teach us how to pray. But this is a unique prayer, because if you're a Christian, this prayer is for you. This prayer is for you. I think it's the only prayer in the New Testament that is for you. And what is so remarkable about it is that it's, it's not the prayer of the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John or the anonymous author of the letter to the Hebrews, all of whom teach us how to pray. It is actually one of the last prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you know that Mark's Gospel is almost certainly Simon Peter's memoirs. And so when you're reading Mark's Gospel, one of the things that you can do that can make it really quite vivid for you is turn the third person into the first person and read it as though Peter were speaking himself. But you don't need to do that artificially with this prayer. This prayer, if you're a Christian, the Lord Jesus was making for you. I do not ask for these only, verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Someone was telling me recently that uh, one of the ways in which they have started to pray is by on their walk singing. He's got the whole world in his hands. And then as they go on in the song, they, they put into the song, he's got you and me. And then they name the children that they're praying for. And you can do that with this prayer. And think, this is what Jesus prayed for me. This is what Jesus prayed for us as a church. This is, this is a reflection of what Jesus must be praying for us now in heaven. And it is so vast, so marvelous, that I want simply to try and draw your attention to what I think are two really important things for us to grasp in this passage. And the first of them is this. It's the way Jesus thinks about you if you're a Christian. The way Jesus thinks about us. Um, 
You know, sometimes a total surprise when somebody we know that we regard highly says, I've been thinking about you, because we didn't expect them to be thinking about you. And if they tell us what they were thinking about us, as long as it's nice, that can be thrilling and encouraging. I didn't know that you thought so well about me. But here in this passage, John is recording for us the prayer of Jesus in which he reveals in in one of the most intimate moments recorded in his ministry, when he is there praying in fellowship with his father, he's He's telling his father how he thinks about these disciples and how he thinks about those who are going to become their disciples. And obviously the first way he thinks about us is that he's praying for us as those who will believe in me through their word. Now, If this were a series in John 17, we'd already have seen that Jesus is speaking about the Father giving the word to him and Jesus giving the word to the apostles and the apostles giving the word to us. Those who believe in me through their word. Now, do you believe in Jesus through their word, the apostles' word? Well, you might say, I may look old, but I am not so old that I ever heard an apostle speak. So what can Jesus be praying about here? Well, actually, we don't need to make it up. This is one of those situations, you know, that can irritate us in our Bible study groups when the the leader says, what do you think this passage means? And someone says, well, the way I like to think it is. Because he's already explained to the disciples what he means to do with them. And you find this earlier on in this marvelous time he's had with them in the farewell discourse. Back in chapter 14, he had said to them, Now listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you and he's going to do three things. He's going to remind you of everything that I've said which is how we've got the Gospels. He is going to show you the things that are still to come. And the third thing he's going to do is going to lead you into all the truth about me. Now, if you reflect on these three statements, they are an almost perfect summary of the New Testament, aren't they? The Gospels are what Jesus had taught them. The letters are leading us into the truth as it is in Jesus and sprinkled through all of these books and other books in the New Testament, the Apostle shows the things that are to come. So if we are to ask the question, how is it possible for me to believe through the word of the Apostles, the answer, the answer is at the back of the big book, isn't it? It's in the New Testament. And when you think about it, without that New Testament, without the apostles being prepared by the Lord Jesus, this is one of the marvelous things, isn't it? It's not an accident that we've got the New Testament. It wasn't a bright idea of the apostles that they would write the New Testament. It was what Jesus was preparing them for and what he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them to enable them to do. And without that, the gospel would never have come to the end of the earth, never have come to Aberdeen, never have come to you. 
so that if you're a Christian, you actually fit into Jesus' prayer exactly. Lord Jesus, I am one of those who's come to believe in you through the apostles' word. And you prepared them, not just for the first century, not just for the Roman Empire, but you prepared them to give something to the next 2,000 years of history so that all over the world, in ever-increasing numbers, and we must never in Scotland, I think, forget that, in ever-increasing numbers, men and women and young people and boys and girls are finding the message of the Bible coming to life in their lives. And through the word of the apostles, they are encountering the Lord Jesus. And that's how he thinks about us. As he thinks back to eternity, as David has been saying to the children, he thinks forwards into the future. And he thinks about me, he thinks about you. Has my name written on his heart that I might be one who comes to believe in him through the word of these apostles. Why do he waste three years of his energy on them? And at the end, they don't seem much better or brighter than at the beginning. Well, he was doing it because of his love for us, that we might come to believe in him. But then there's a second way he describes us in these verses, and in some ways I think this is much more moving in verse 24, that, um, you know, there's nothing worse than a minister inviting you to preach for him and then stealing parts of your sermon in his children's address. Uh, but this is marvelous, isn't it? Um, and I'm so glad you've got a minister who is a godly thief in that respect. He prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. That's the heart of how Jesus thinks about you if you're a Christian. You're somebody his Father has given to him. And it's interesting, that theme, those words, that language, appeared earlier on in John's Gospel, maybe once or twice. But if you, if you read down through John 17, you'll notice that he, in this chapter it's intense. He keeps saying it. And he keeps saying it here because this is, his, this is the most intimate conversation with his father that's recorded in John's Gospel. So, if I can put it this way, Jesus', Jesus emotions are heightened at this point. Jesus is, we could say Jesus is in heaven at this point and he's speaking to his Father. How does he think about you when he's speaking to his Father about you? Father, these are the ones you gave me and you gave them to me in your love for me. We could not be more valuable to Jesus than that. So how do we value things um, if someone gives, gives us something? So someone gave me something just a few weeks ago, and it will be of no interest to almost all of you, but to any of you who play golf, it will be of great interest. And if you could see this up close, you would see this is a watch that you can get only at the Augusta National Golf Club. 
where the Masters Championship is played, which means nothing to most of you, but almost everything to those of you who play golf. It's got the logo on it. Um, Even the watch strap has the logo on it. And it was made in Switzerland. Um, So I don't know how much it cost. And it's valuable to me, not because of the Masters logo, valuable to me because of the person who gave it to me that somehow or another he got hold of this and he didn't keep it to himself um, he, he is a more neurotic golfer than I am but he said Sinclair I want you to have this watch it's the only watch I've got that actually works but that's beside the point the reason I value it is because of the relationship I have of friendship to the person who gave it to me. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not, he's saying, you know, Jesus has not bought in here to the modern nonsense that no matter who you are, you're a prince or a princess. What Jesus has bought into here is that these disciples who have been so frustrating for three years, who seem to have made so little progress, and within a couple of hours will all flee from his side, have been given to him by his heavenly Father. He has, he's put his hand on them, and he has loved them, and now he's said to Jesus, Jesus, I have chosen them so that you will have them. Now, why is that so important to us? Well, it's, it's important for fairly obvious reasons, isn't it? That, that if we are Christians, we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And many of us think very lowly of ourselves. We, I, I've lost count of the number of Christians who have said to me on first meeting, I'm, I'm nobody, I'm, I'm nothing. And that can crush you, can't it? And especially if you live in a little world where not only do you feel that about yourself, but part of the reason you feel that about yourself is because other people have made you feel that about yourself. And this is why it's so important for us to listen to the prayer of the Lord Jesus, to listen to the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus. This is what Jesus thinks about us. This is why Jesus values us. This is why... Jesus keeps us because his Father has loved us so much that he has given us to his own dear Son. And it's almost as though as Jesus lets his apostles overhear his prayer for others, he is saying to them, my dear friends, I want you to hear me giving expression to how much these ones mean to me. You see, he understands and brings his open heart to the Father and says, Father, I know that you would never give me your throwaways, your cast-offs, your second-hand stuff. And that's why I'm bringing them back to you. Because 
put your name in here is your gift in your love for them and your gift in your love for me. It is surely the most life-transforming thing for a Christian believer to know how much you mean to him because of his Father's love. So this is the way Jesus thinks about us. He thinks about us as those who have come to faith through the Apostle's Word, and he thinks about us as those whom his Father has given to him in his love. And that leads to the second thing, the way Jesus thinks about us, the way Jesus prays for us. And you notice here that he also prays in two different dimensions. He prays for us, first of all, in the here and now. What does he pray for us? He prays for us that as individuals we might be brought into his family and may be one. Now, I think it's perfectly clear he's not talking here about what people used to talk about, church unity. We need to get all the denominations together. Um, Jesus did not invent denominations. You're not speaking here about institutional unity. You can have all the institutional unity in the world. And there is one professing church that throughout its history has claimed to have that unity. But when you dig down inside, you see that so many people in it are at loggerheads with one another. You're not speaking about that. He's speaking about the kind of unity of fellowship that he has with his son and his son has with him. And earlier on he's made it plain that this is a unity they enjoy in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And he actually makes that, as David was saying, like the pattern, the model, that just as you and I, my son, are in fellowship with one another, and Father, I am in fellowship with you, and our hearts beat as one, and our minds beat at one at the personal level. And we share in the same glory in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's that's what I want, Father, for these, my children, for those who believe in me, for those you have given to me, that they may be one. And earlier on, he taught the disciples. I don't think they could have begun to understand this until much later on. That what would create this unity would be that when they when they received the Holy Spirit into their lives that Jesus was promising to give them, the Holy Spirit would make their lives a home for the Father and the Son to dwell in. You see that, you see that trilogy, that triangle, that trinity? That when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the hearts of believers, there is only one Holy Spirit, And that Holy Spirit brings into the life of a believer the Father and the Son and makes that life homely, comfortable for the Father and the Son to dwell in. And if that's true of the individual believer, since there is only one Holy Spirit, since there there is only one Father, since there is only one Son, exactly the same is true of every single believer 
if we could take in what Jesus teaches his disciples here and think about one another that way, as by God's grace we do begin to think about one another that way, obviously there would be no society, no community, no family, no group of people that could be anything like the fellowship of the church where people honor and admire and esteem and love one another, not just because of what we are in ourselves, but because we've been given to the Son by the Father, and every single one of us is indwelt by the same Holy Spirit to make our lives a place where God feels at home. That's why the New Testament central picture of the church is, is not the functioning of a body or even the structure of a temple. It's the life of a family where, yes, there will be tensions and struggles, but the, it's as though there is a, there's something genetic here that binds us together in mutual devotion. And this is greater than any biological genetic structure. This is God himself binding us together in this marvelous way. So he's praying in the here and now that that we may be one. And he has a special reason for praying this. It's not the only reason, but for him at this point it's a very important reason. It is that the world may believe Isn't this interesting? What will make, and this has been true throughout the history of the Christian church, what makes the world believe in the gospel is not in and of itself great preaching, but church life. That's what he's praying for. We lived at one time in Dallas at the time, Dallas, Texas, that is, not Dallas, somewhere up in Marisha, the original Dallas. At the time that the movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out, and there was a mega church, mega, 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 mega church pastor went on record all over the place as saying, this movie is the greatest evangelistic instrument God has ever given to the world. And I remember reading it in the paper and thinking, what about the church? What about the church? Because Jesus says when, when this takes place and people are exposed to this heavenly life, then of course they're going to say, this is a puzzle to me. I don't see this anywhere else. I don't experience this anywhere else. They may hate the gospel. And if you listen, you will hear people who say, I hated the gospel, but then when I saw the gospel in the church, I realized this, there's something here that is, this is how life was meant to be. There's something supernatural here. And that's it, isn't it? So that people, people today, as they are exposed to the fellowship of a living church, will say to us, I didn't know church was like this. Or even at funeral services. And given your demographic, you maybe don't have all that many in Trinity. 
for even at funeral services, outsiders will come and say, as they've said to me, I didn't realize it was going to be a worship service. Why do they say that? Because they are used to funeral services without the presence of God. That's why, isn't it? Comfortless. Purely horizontal experience. No hope. And that's what Jesus is praying. Praying that we may be one like this in order that the world may believe. Because, as he prays here, of the love that there is. Not just between the Father and the Son, but the love that there is among his disciples. So, this is the reason Jesus prays this way for us. Father, I want those that you have given me to be one in order that the world may believe. But he's praying not just about the here and now, he is praying about the there and then. And this, of course, is especially in verse 24. He wants us to be kept now so that we will be with him where he is. And the reason is because he wants us to see him in his glory. Why? Why does he focus on this? Jesus, why, why is it important to you that you want us to see you in your glory? Why would that be important for the men who are listening? Because they were about to see him in his shame and his humiliation, his rejection, his crucifixion, all the despising of him, the demeaning, the torturing, the shaming. And you see, in a sense, we could say this is the most natural thing in the world for the Son of God to pray. Because the same is true for us, isn't it? In our day, we see him demeaned and shamed and despised and rejected. And he's praying that one day we will see him as he really is in full color, in all the blaze of his glory. And see him ascended and triumphant and reigning and glorious and see in the kind of vision we've got in the book of Revelation the whole of the created order coming and bowing down before him and calling him Lord. So he's praying this because he knows that we see him in his humiliation. And he wants, he wants us to see him there because that glory is the glory given to him by his Father in the love his Father had for him before the foundation of the world. You know, my answer to David's first question was foundation. My family would tell you. Dad, he, he would just go for the foundation. He wouldn't have any plan. He would just go for the foundation. The whole thing will collapse. But here's the plan. The Father has loved his Son from all eternity. And he's praying that in that glory we will at last see what that love is really like. The length and depth and height and breadth and the love of God for His Son Jesus Christ and therefore His love for us. Um, maybe some of you have fallen in love for the first time in your life. And there is some, but your parents didn't choose to love you in the sense they got you, and because they got you, they loved you, and that's great. 
But then you found somebody who loves you. Who doesn't have any genetic connection to you except in Adam and Eve. And it does something, doesn't it? And it may only be three weeks ago. But your friends notice the difference. You notice the difference. And then, by the looks of you, you may never have heard a live apostle, but you have been alive for a long time and married for a long time. And you have had that love for somebody else for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And it never ceases in your best moments. It never ceases to amaze you. Someone has loved you that long. But this, a love that never will end because it never needed to begin. It's in that love that His glory will be seen. And He wants us to see that glory so that we will be then ourselves finally and fully enveloped into that love. And to think that He prayed this for you if you're a Christian 2,000 years ago And that what we've got here, in a way, must be a transcript of that prayer that he prayed. As well as a kind of cardiogram of the way he intercedes for us today. And what John is giving to us here is is Jesus' cardiogram, isn't it? And he's saying, look at that. Look at that perfect heartbeat. Look at that heart that has never missed a beat in its love for you and never will, that will go on beating for all eternity. I pray that those you have given me in your love for me may be with me where I am to see me in my glory. And the great thing as Hebrews tells us, which has got so much to say about Jesus' high priestly prayers, says he is the same today, today, as he was yesterday when he prayed John 17. And he'll be like that forever. And there can therefore be few things more important for us as we go about our Christian lives, our ordinary Christian lives, than for us to remember that Jesus has prayed this for us and he is praying it for us. And that we mean this much to his heavenly Father. And that he's brought us to his heavenly Father. Just as you remember he brought Simon Peter in all his failure to his heavenly Father. And says to us as he says to Peter, Sinclair, James, David, Mary, Anne, I prayed for you, and I am praying for you, and this is what I'm praying, that you may know the love that your Father has for you, and the love I have for you because He has given His loved ones to me to become my loved ones, and I want you to see me in the full blaze of my glory. And I've prayed that you will be kept for it and that you will see it. And no matter then what happens to us in our daily lives, we can live with our heads held high in the world because at last we know who we really are. And nobody except a Christian can possibly know this. 
This is what's so marvelously unique about being a Christian. You know this about you. That you've been loved by God from before the foundation of the world. That the Father has given you to His Son. That His Son has died for you. That His Son has prayed for you. That His Son is in heaven living for you. Waiting for that day when you will see Him in His glory. So... May the Lord help us to live in the light of this and to live faithfully until that day dawns. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you gave to the Lord Jesus, that he gave to the apostles, and that they have given to us. Lord, there are so many things that we know we don't know. But we are amazed at the things that you have revealed to us so that we will know them. And we, we pray together for ourselves, for one another. Even as perhaps friends who struggle in the Christian life and struggle with a sense of whether they're really worth anything or not. We pray that by your Holy Spirit there may be a dawning upon our minds and our hearts, our affections and our wills of the sheer wonder and glory of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and to be loved by you, our Father, in Him and be brought to know that through your Holy Spirit. Send us, then we pray, day by day into the world to live as those who feel we have already tasted heaven's glory and are able to live some measure of its wonder out in the world today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.